Welcome to Traumedy. I'm your host, Nancy Norton. I'm a comedian, a former registered nurse, and this is not medical advice, nor a replacement for trauma therapy. Traumedy is teaching us how to take our pain and play with it, like comedians do naturally. We have an amazing guest who needs to be anonymous and has chosen to be anonymous because they're in an anonymous 12-step program. Our guest this week is George X., a uh, friend of mine, longtime friend, and just somebody that makes me laugh more than almost anybody. So a lot of laughs this week and a lot of a lot of trauma. I mean, it is the ultimate traumedy podcast episode. We are going to go into some, you know, in, in, pretty intense stuff around alcoholism and depression and suicide attempts. So brace yourself for that. We are going to laugh along the way. Let me know if you have a topic you want to have covered or if you want to be a guest on Traumedy, you can reach out to me, Nancy Norton, at my website, www.nancynorton.tv, like television. And again, thanks for tuning in, and let's keep sharing and let's keep helping each other through this, what we call, life. Welcome to Traumedy. My guest this week is George X. And I've already got my muses giggling over here because George X, George, may I call you George? <laughs> you can call me George. Yes. <laughs> you have always been one of those people that I swear I can just look in your eyes <laughs> and start giggling. Well, I, I, I have a funny looking face, so I'm <laughs> not the first person to say that. Um, oh, wow. Right off the bat, let me know. I'm not original. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always bracing myself, too. There's a little bit of that because we probably met in the green room at Comedy Works. I was trying to think it's because when did you move to Denver? Uh, 1991. 91? Yeah. Okay. Because, yeah. Or 90, I moved, but then I don't think I showed up there till probably. Okay. Yeah. I knew it was, I was thinking late 80s or early 90s. So, yeah, that's probably the place. Early 90s. And man, there were like zingers just bing, bing, you know, the Rick and the. Todd and the Troy and the, and well, you the know, Roger. You know what I'm talking about? I totally know what you're talking about. And there's most of the time I enjoyed that kind of interplay, but I was thinking about this on the way over. Sometimes there were like no boundaries and sometimes <sighs> people would really get hurt or it just, there was just no boundaries, you know, comics were, and it was kind of part of being in the club of like, no, you got to take it. Uh, if you're going to dish it out, but it was kind of funny because some of the people that were really good at dishing it out were not great at taking it. I'm thinking of someone in particular whose synapses just fire so fast and yeah. zing, 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 zing. But man, no, I remember one time yeah. having to do, I had gone through a very hard breakup with somebody and I got zinged by a friend and I can't, I think I had, I, was, I can't remember what I said before or after that, but I said, yeah, I'm really in pain right now. I mean, I'm just, I know we're not supposed to talk about real shit, but uh, I'm really hurting right now. And that really hurt my feelings. So please don't do that again. And he did it again. And I said, that's the last, we're not going to be friends if you do that again. I'm just telling you because uh, I'm not, uh, you know, in a place to receive that right now. And he got the message that time. Finally, he, he understood, but it was, it was tough. And I knew there were other people that, you know, good comics that were like, yeah, I don't really like hanging around that, that around that energy, and I always kind of enjoyed it because you're you know, good at I, well, it. Well, and it was you're, and it could be funny and could be fun, but there were times when you went, oh, okay, maybe we went too far there, you know. Well, because at that time, I really feel like that was the milieu, 
And that's so cool that we're bringing that up right away because I'm studying therapeutic humor. Mm -hmm. And so one of the big things is like, okay, is it affiliative? Does it, does it lift, you know, us up or is it aggressive? And like somebody has got to be down for the other person to be up. Yes. And, and so, or sometimes it can be that sparring where if you're equals with somebody and you're just like zing, 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 and that's your code and you all agree on it then that can, that can be affiliative if you're just appreciating it. Yes. But like you said, when you have a real like wound, and we all do, and we hide it. And I think, man, I'm doing all this parts work. I don't know if you've heard of parts mm-hmm. work. It's inner family systems. Well, my inner teenager, her name is Virginia Vengeance. <laughs> and you She's know. She's a punk rocker. Or oh, yeah. Like, uh, she is. She thinks she is. Yeah. And she but she protects my inner child who's very tender and wounded. And if somebody hurts little Nancy, Virginia vengeance is like, what did you just say? And yeah. then, and depending on the person, the avenging angel. Yeah. The, yeah. And yeah. I remember you saying this to me and I know this is going to be maybe weird for you to say, cause you're in a recovery program. Mm-hmm. You're yes. for alcoholism. I hope, is that okay if I say that? Well, you did now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can say that. I'm pretty old. I, you know, I'm not a uh, rocket scientist or brain surgeon or airline pilot, so I'm pretty open about it, even though I'm Mr. X today. So Mr. X. Just because of anonymity concerns, and I, I want to talk about more uh, yeah, you know, well, recovery-related stuff, but please tell yeah, me. Yeah, no, well, no, you told me once, which I thought was interesting, because you were in recovery already, and you go, you know, you... I love being around you when you drink because you're a lot of fun. You know, I I think because Virginia Vengeance, Mm -hmm. because my mother, I really struggle. Like, I need the stage. I need the microphone. I need to say it is, this is comedy. It is my turn. And I get to say whatever the fuck I want. Yeah. But in the green room, even there, I I think I was sort of, my little inner child was hiding behind the couch because I kind of knew I couldn't really hang with you guys. It could be very daunting. Even with seasoned uh, comedians, it could be uh, very daunting. People would I go, did not. Uh, I could not. So I have to be honest. People would say, I don't like that energy. I don't have to be on in the green room and do all that stuff. I was like, these guys, I cannot. Well, you are one of those fun people, you know. <laughs> and even as a guy, a sober guy, you know, there are people that are fun and you just kind of, it's kind of amusing. <laughs> oh, that's cute. She's got a little buzz going and I yeah. can just tell and everything. And then, there's those people, and usually later in the evening when they get that sense of personal space of a Lebanese bazaar, you know, and they're like three inches. Yeah, you, do you know how, you know, and you're, okay. Uh, nothing against no, the Lebanese. Yeah, nothing against the Lebanese or their bazaars. But, uh, and yeah, and yeah did you know, remember that time we took mushrooms like in 87? And you're like, and yeah, they're just, uh, yeah. I also remember the first three times you told that story tonight. So, uh, you know, <laughs> and then that's the time when you go, okay, I got to go. That's yeah. Why I, I, I drive, but you know, some people are fun. You know? And yeah, some people are fun. And I'm, I, I think, and my dad was one of those people, like that's when he would show up emotionally. And I, I joke about my dad being an alcoholic and I don't know that he was, but he took, he drank two drinks a night and some people do, some people just cannot, like it's never, it's never the last no, one. That was my MO. It's like when I start drinking, I cannot consistently and accurately predict what's going to happen. Once, you know? once it starts, and, it's on. And I was a blackout drinker when I always think of the great line from the great comedian Dave Attell, who talks about blackouts as being alcoholic time travel, you know, <laughs> now I'm in a bar and now I'm in a McDonald's with one shoe on. Uh, <laughs> how did that happen? And that, that was, that was me, you know, I mean, yeah. I, 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 uh, I did not moderate it very well and, and it yep. was, and I became kind of a buffoon too. And that's, you know, eventually is when I, 
you know, you get the messages from the universe and it's like, you know, I don't want to be a buffoon anymore. You know, I don't want to be somebody that's this big drunken oaf, you know, falling down and stuff. You know? Yeah. So that was, that was one of your big wake up calls that was, was just looking call. in the mirror and going, I don't want, this isn't, yeah. this isn't who I am. Yeah. Yeah, because you're not you're not that person. Uh, you know, that's the thing that I regret. You know, when we do the work of recovery and you know uh, doing inventory and figuring out some of the crummy stuff you've done, and then being willing to go make amends to people is um, it's a powerful process. But boy, it's hard when you when you have to you know search the memory banks uh, such as they are and and really look at the things that you've done and the way you've harmed people. But it's also the path of liberation, you know, yeah. and it's beautiful to be able to do that because most of the time we've spent running away from that stuff. Uh, so the willingness to go do that is, is amazing, but uh, boy, it's hard. And I've been thinking a lot. I just celebrated uh, 30 years sober. Oh, wow. I'm going to clap April 29th. And I've been thinking a lot about 30 years about George. my journey with, you know, I'm in a 12 step program. So I'm, uh, you know, we talk about faith a lot and stuff, which I wanted no part of when I first came around, you know, I thought I had that figured out when I was 12. There is no God. Yeah. You know, I'm you 12. It all figured out. See me if you have any other questions on life's <laughs> mysteries. Because I'm 12 and I know it all, you know. Um, so I've had a change of heart on that. Um, but I've been thinking about grace a lot, you know. And and one of the definitions of grace is an unearned gift. And in the, the process of doing amends, and you may appreciate this because there was a guy named John Cooney. Do you remember him? Oh, yeah. He passed away. He, he passed away some time ago. Yeah. But we never got along, right? Like the first time I met him, he was the manager at McKelvey's Comedy Club, which was out on Hamden. Yeah, in, in Denver. Uh, in Denver. And I was like brand new. And I, you know, I came in and I kind of didn't know where to go because that, that room was kind of, there was, it was, you know, there was a bunch of new talent people and everything. And he said, well, go over there or whatever. And I guess I was standing in the wrong place. And he came up and stuck his finger in my chest and said, I told you to go over there. And I said, get your finger off my fucking chest or we're going to have a problem. And that was our first interaction. Yeah. And then after that, we never got along. And um, over the years, and when I got sober, I had to realize, oh, yeah, I did a lot of arrogant shit. You know, I always wanted to put it on him. And oh, he's just I, he's just a jerk. But it was like. No, I did some arrogant, I said arrogant things to people and unkind things. And, you know, I mean, that was the information he had to work with. But I went to make amends to him because I had, um, I had screwed up some shows where, you know, I'd shown up drunk and done some things that I owed amends for. And um, I went to make amends to him and he was so gracious. Mm. And he said, um, I think you're a great comic and, um, because one of the things when you make amends, it's not just, I'm sorry. You know, when you make an amend, you say, here's what I did to harm you. And here's what I'd like to do to try to make it right. And is there anything else you need to tell me? Yeah. So you have to listen sometimes. And, sometimes, right. and again, as a blackout drinker, sometimes people go, oh yeah. And then there are another thing and you go, well, you know, but he said, what you can do is um, stay sober and live your best life. Oh, John. And this was from a guy that, you know, we had a difficult relationship and I thought, man, that's some grace. That's from a guy that, you know, we had a, you know, we had butted heads forever. And, and when I, uh, and part of it, I think had to do with my willingness to go and, and, and try to repair some things, but it was, uh, that was powerful. And, and I, not all of them went like that, but I, I would say there was another one or two of, of people I'd had difficult interactions with that, that said something to that effect. That it sort of dissolved that power struggle. Yeah. And 
You know, I was seeing too, though, I feel like when somebody's in charge of their comedy club, but that doesn't give them the right to poke you in the chest and treat you. Yeah. I mean, so you stood up to him and you don't, you don't poke me in the chest. So I can see the two way power struggle there because you aren't going to take that disrespect yeah. from, and you shouldn't have, but then again, you could have deferred more in some ways probably, but I like that you stood up to him. poking. <laughs> you in the, I mean, personally, as somebody who, you know, mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time in other meetings for mm-hmm. codependency and adult children. And sometimes it's the most, the, you know, the best healing thing we do is sometimes to, to stand up for ourselves. And I, I mean, what I'm trying to, you know what I just figured out, I don't know if you've ever, ever had this thought, but it hit me just yesterday that I spend so much time in that fight, flight, freeze, fawn, like one of those four th- responses to mm-hmm. trauma that I'm rarely like able to say, no, thank you. I feel like when I say no, it's like such a, like uh-huh. I'm either in fight mode or I, or I don't say it. But yes. anyway, no, I a hear lot you. of time we do spend a lot of time reactive, uh, you know, yes. reactivity, right? Well, and I've so learned you, that you've got to try to do everything with love in your heart, you know, when even if you're saying no and putting a boundary on something, there's a way to do that in a in a loving fashion. Oh, and how's you that know? going? Are you doing? How are you doing? Oh, I that? hate everybody. I don't do. <laughs> I never do it. <laughs> no, it's, but, but I want to know. Do you have a technique that, like, do you pause and take a breath? Because I'm very reactive. Absolutely, pause. Okay, pause. That's a that's a line in in uh, in the book book of AA is that we pause when agitated or doubtful. And okay. If I sometimes say if I learn nothing else from recovery, my life would go better if I learned to do that because yeah. I'm totally reactive. I'm I always say I'm like an amoeba. You know, poke one side and the other side's gonna blob out. Oh, you know? okay. And so and it's that immediate. I'm not it's that, that immediate. reactive. Yeah. I, I used to be, and now I've learned to uh, try to have some um, perspective on it and try to pause when agitated or doubtful and just, you know, give it yep. a second before we come back. And, um, and like I say, try to have some love in our heart and recognize, uh, where other people are coming from. One of the biggest things I've learned about, I and mean, we talk a lot about fear and recovery, you know, yeah. about fear as being this underlying, you know, fear underlies almost all anger. Yep. Uh, we realize that the anger, anger is just is- a masking of the, of the fear. And so one of the things I'll learn to do if I am in conflict with somebody is I ask myself, I wonder what I'm afraid of. And I wonder what that guy's afraid of. And it doesn't necessarily mean that things magically resolve, but it, it puts me on the road to compassion rather than anger. When I go, I wonder what he's afraid of. And 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 just being curious and just being curious of what's his perspective on it. And then that, that really helps, you know, sometimes you can find some understanding that you might not have, have found. And, and again, I don't always do that, but I try to try to be on that level. When you're operating at your best and the variables haven't stacked, I'm looking at myself. I have an HOA meeting coming up. (laughs) I'm preparing. (laughs) I am getting psyched up. I have felt, but I have, it's such a perfect metaphor for my family, right? To have this HOA, the head, you know, the authority. And then I feel sort of, they aren't seeing me. They're not, you know, they don't know my needs. They, whatever. And I, I do, I have a bracelet I wear sometimes at Q-tip, quit taking it personally. Oh, yes. You know, and it's, that's my, one of my biggest uh, faults as taking things personally, because well, that's it usually isn't. One of the four agreements. Have you ever read that? Yeah, book? I did that, read that. I need says, to reread it. And that, I think that's my hardest one because I, I actually, I understand the concept of that and I agree with it most of the time, but sometimes I go, no, when that guy called me an asshole, that felt personal. Yeah, You know, I mean, he wasn't talking to somebody else. He was talking to me, you know, so I, I find it difficult. But when you understand the idea of 
they're bringing they're bringing all their past experience and all their past reactivity and all their shit. Yeah, and they're to, protectors to that, to that interaction, and it, and you may have triggered something in them that you're not even aware of, and all this other variables. It's ultimately somewhat narcissistic to think it is about you. Yes, you know. So when you can like, oh, that, but it's it's hard sometimes because you you know you butt heads and then you go, wait a second, that that felt like directed, and it, even just like what we were talking about, like, uh, you know doing the dozens in the green room, you know, and zinging people, you go, no, usually you do that most effectively when you do something very specific yeah. about what they're oh, yeah. target, bummed out about. Target my, my lazy, crazy <laughs> eye or, or whatever yeah. your, you know, exactly. whatever your issue that we know, we have a file, we yeah. know, and we know the file. We'll so. poke that scab oh, until man. it comes off, oh, you know, which is yeah, tell it, too bad. Too bad. Until we decide not to, you know, I mean, I, I have an interesting relationship with comedy because I did that for, for years. Yeah. And then, at one point I had this epiphany while I was out in the road and it was difficult because I was never like a great comic, you know, and I would get pissed off at audiences and I'd be, um, I don't know, I'd be condescending. And and, I, and I, tell us, what does that mean, George? Uh, that means talking down to. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, um, I love when you. <laughs> and, but I would do that and shoot myself in the photo. I remember working with Jake Johansson, the great comedian one time, and I yeah. was doing a bit that I just couldn't get to work. And then I get mad at the audience and comment on it, you know, for like five minutes about yeah. how that didn't work. And he, he finally said, I think you're just kind of shooting yourself in the foot there. I mean, you, at some point you just got to move on. I was, yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, but I had this epiphany because I had set my life up. Part of the reason, like a lot of us go into comedy is I got this hole inside of me and I need this outside validation. Yeah. You know, it's not even conscious that we're doing that, but that's right. what's going on. And then one time I was somewhere out on the road and having bad shows. And I went, you know, I don't think it's the healthiest lifestyle to abdicate my sense of self-worth to a room full of strangers every night. And drunk and strangers at drunk that. Drunk strangers at that. So I was like, at some point I said, yeah, I may not be able to do this anymore. Or, I mean, I could do it and, and, and not you know, I have an independent sense of my own self-worth. Yeah. Uh, but at the time, that's kind of the way I'd set up the the dynamic, you know. I mean, well, I remember when we first started doing comedy, I mean, I thought I had found it. I was having trouble holding on to jobs. And and when I first found comedy, it was like, this is it. Oh. You know, I don't have to be anywhere till 730 at night. So that helps, you know, with <laughs> jobs. I was having trouble getting up. Uh, you know, they they give me free drinks. They applaud when I'm done. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of like when I have sex with people, you know, the same exact <laughs> dynamic. Folks. <laughs> Folks. Um, but can I, can I say, I have, yes. I'm raising my hand. Yes. I need you to know something. And I think you know this. I'm not sure if you know it. Uh, but you have a reputation among the comedians as being one of the funniest people. Do you know that? Like, uh, do you well, know that among the comedians, it's like George is so funny, but there's something that happens that doesn't transfer to the stage. Yes. What do you, does that ring, ring true yes. at all? And I'm, I'm still chewing on. You are so funny, but it just doesn't translate to the stage. <laughs> it does you know, translate, no, no, but but most, not often. But it doesn't. By compare, no. no hear me out. By comparison. Yes. To how funny I would, you are in the green room, and then there I, was something that. I would totally agree with that assessment. And okay. I'll tell you, and it reminded me of one of my favorite backhand compliments I ever got. I was working with a guy named Richard Jenny. Do you remember him back in the day? Yeah. He was very, he was big back in the day. He he had his own, he had a oh, show yeah. for a while and he had a great special and he was a brilliant, brilliant comic. And I did four shows with him in Tucson. And the first three 
I just rocked. I had a great show and we hung out together and we had a great time and it was really fun. And I really, that's one of those weeks where you feel like this, I'm really a pro comic, you know? And the fourth show, they just came to see him and I, I, and it was really bad. And after the show, he said to me, you know, I don't think I've ever seen anybody as good as you have that bad a show. (laughs) (laughs) And and it was funny because I could appreciate that because that's when you know you're in the club when they'll even say that to you. If they didn't like you, they would never even say that. I mean, years ago, our friend Mike Long, when I was pretty new, I had a crummy show and and he comes up afterwards and goes, man, you couldn't buy a laugh out there, you know? And I had to laugh because I went, oh, that means I'm in the club now because if they don't like you, nobody says anything. No, they, or they say nice shirt, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've had that too. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what I think too? I actually do think if you had a room full of other, because I feel like you're a comics comic. And if you had a room full of comedians, I think that's your audience. You have this very cerebral, uh, sarcastic wit that, yeah, is, right. <laughs> <laughs> and I just feel like there's a loneliness uh, when you're up there and you've got these like gems and people don't get it. They literally don't get it or they don't appreciate like the layers of sarcasm that you're doing. And it's so lonely <laughs> and it feels like rejection when it's really just we don't get it. And then you start taking it personally, your little Q-tip moment. Mm-hmm. You know, again, our, our perversity is comics. I remember a comic friend going, uh, if you can't make them like you, make them hate you. Oh. You know, which is a, a, a kind of a crazy thing, but I, nope. I have done that before. But, it's like, I don't want to be in the middle. I don't want to just be like that one guy. It's like, no, they're going to remember when they walk out of there. Good, bad, or well, different, th- you know. I think there's some, like, there's a power in that. Like, there's a passion. There is a connection, at least. So maybe, hey, I'm going to get a connection. There is an old line that the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. Yeah, man. So that's the that's exactly what you're talking about yeah, there. Thank of, you. of like, uh, uh, just be, just not. You're, you don't, yeah, you have uh, no, you don't exist. You don't exist. Well, I love, there's that, uh, there's a great line in the movie Casablanca, you know, and uh, so it's Humphrey Bogart and this guy, uh, Peter Laurie, who is this character actor. Oh, yeah. And uh, he's got the letters of transit that they're trying to get. And Peter Lurie, he goes, you despise me, don't you, Rick? And uh, Humphrey Bogart goes, I suppose if I gave you any thought at all, I would. (laughs) And And there's nothing. I I think about, and notice I can do the Peter Lurie impression, but not the Bogart. So sorry about (laughs) that. But uh, if you got your hopes up that you were going to hear a Bogart, I'm sorry. I squelched that. But uh, I always love that line of like, yeah, if I gave you any thought at all, yeah, I would maybe despise you, but that's, the, that's, work that's, our, wor- that's even, it's like, I don't even think about you, you know? Man, so, yeah. uh, you know, well, I would just wanted to talk about, um, you know, some of the things that I learned, uh, about some of the stuff when I was in treatment many years ago. And so you went to treatment, I went to treatment in 1989 at a place called Harmony up in, um, up in Estes park. And it's a beautiful place. If it's an old hunting lodge and if you have to go to treatment. I'm going to give them a plug here. Yeah, give them a plug. <laughs> you need to go. Uh, it's a wonderful place to go. And it's kind of a 12-step based program. They introduce you to a lot of stuff. But I got there. Um, I was doing stand-up um, just for a couple years at that that point. And like I said, I had started stand-up because I had messed a lot of things up. And I thought I found my calling and all this. And then so I went to Harmony and partially because I was about ready to do a tour of the Midwest and I was hitting it really hard. And I had this premonition of I'm not going to make it out of Iowa alive. Um, it was tough. So I went in to harmony and 
So I get there and I think I'm like, you know, this uh, international man of mystery, you know, intrigue. I'm going to be, and I go there and like the second day I'm there, they, they watch me for like a day and a half and they go, the guy, the counselor calls me into his office. He goes, you're now on joke restriction. <laughs> and I was like, what does that even mean? You know? And he goes, for the remainder of your stay with us, you will not be allowed to tell any jokes. Oh, and I was like, what? And, and he goes, yeah, that seems to be your biggest coping mechanism. So we're going to take that away from you for a while and wow. see how that goes. And I got to tell you, man, that was harder than kicking booze or drugs or anything else. Because when you're in treatment with like 30 other bozos, believe me, things come up upon which you would like to be able to comment. You yes. <laughs> so I, can I tell you, I just felt like this burn go through my whole uh, body. Like, how am I going to get this burn? Yeah. How am I going to get the burn out of my body? Well, what was funny was I did this thing where, um, you know, things would happen and everybody would look at me and I would just go, huh? <laughs> so you got the, you, you learned to express just with a just, little, I would just go, huh? That's all <laughs> I could do. And that's actually, you know, when I got back in the working world, that's helped, you know, when your boss says something stupid and you just go, <laughs> instead of making a joke. And I remember when I got my chip at the end of the, at the end of my time up there, when I went up to get, they announced my name and everybody went, huh? Oh, <laughs> so, that was, so your... it was great, but it was, it, that was an interesting exercise to not be able to. And it was so true. And another thing that happened when I was up there is about your fourth day in treatment, they have you tell your story, you know? And so I told my story and they made me do it again, which they never made anybody else do. And I was mortified because I wanted to get a smiley face in treatment. You know? Yeah. And I, was like, I was like, why do I have to do it again? And they go, man, when you tell your story, it's like you're talking about somebody else. Oh. You are so detached from your own emotional reality. Uh-huh. You, we need you to get a little connected there. And I thought that was so true because I'm really cerebral. It's really a lot. Yeah. In the brain. And they talk in, in recovery circles sometimes about making the 18 inch drop, you know, from your, from your brain to your heart and yeah. getting in touch with what's really going on. Because one of my coping mechanisms was just, I just denial, you know, I'm just going to yeah. deny that stuff and, or make a joke about or it. Dissociate. Or disassociate, do all that stuff. Uh, going back to, you know, when my, possibly even when my parents uh, got divorced when I was a kid, you know, that was my first, we're going to talk about trauma. That was the first trauma that I remember. And it's not the worst trauma in the world. A lot of people go through that, but I've learned to not uh, try to compare the traumas, you know, I mean, I, that's right. It's good to have, uh, I try to have perspective and recognize, but you know, we're allowed to, to feel, uh, feel something about the things that deeply impacted us. Yeah. So I don't have to get into a comparison game with, no. with other people's uh, things, but that was my, you know, first trauma. My, I'd been very close to my father and then he was, uh, you know, he was gone and then we moved to Germany for a couple of years. So I really didn't get to see him for a while. And you uh, moved to Germany with your mom, with my mom. Yeah. She taught for the department of defense school. So oh, in sixth and seventh grade, so we lived over there. Wow. So you also were way outside of your culture, yeah. your friends, oh, yeah. you lost was, it. a lot, a lot, a lot going on there. Yes. A lot of loss. And, um, and that's, you know, I first experimented with hash over there. That was the first time I really kind of altered my mind, which I really liked. And then when we came back, when I was 13, the first time I ever got drunk, my, was my cousin and I were bartending for a party of my mom's, right? She tells you a little something about our family, you know, we're yeah. mixing up the drinks. Yeah, you know? <laughs> the kids are so the bartenders. So this is like, you know, 1971 or something, you know? Uh, and 
I was watching all these adults and I, I had probably maybe had a half a beer or something at some point in my life before that, but I was watching all these adults get drunk and I was like, I want to see what that's like. So uh, again, see if this sounds alcoholic instead of like just having a few mixed drinks or, you know, doing that. I took eight slugs out of eight different bottles of hard booze. Whoa. And that was fun for about three minutes. Oh man. <laughs> and then they had to, you know, they had to wrestle me up to my room and um, I, I got the spins and I threw up everywhere and I, I was spinning all night. I woke up the next day with a horrific hangover and I couldn't wait to try it again. Wow. You know, that's the weird thing about yeah. drugs. It's like most people presented with that set of uh, circumstances. Like my cousin who I was with that night, he did his experiment with alcohol later that year and he, he was a you know, he just drank some drinks and stuff, but he had like six or seven drinks and got real drunk and threw up and yeah. had all, and he told me, yeah, I got drunk and I had the spins and I threw up and had a terrible hangover. And I go, yeah, what a great, <laughs> and was, yeah, no, that's... that wasn't fun. And I don't think he's been drunk again in his life. He's a pretty straight guy. It's just like, I don't want to be that. Like, I don't want to feel like that. I do that. Yeah. You know? I want to talk about this concept of what is an alcoholic? Because one of my friends and I were just talking about this because she has a, uh, somebody in her life that she, you know, is in love with who self-medicates with alcohol and cocaine. And she's like, but he's not an alcoholic. And I, it, cause she differentiates it with a chemical dependency versus psychological. And I'm like, wait, I, I, I don't know. Is that even differentiated? Because I don't know. Do, yeah. Do you, I, what, and you know, it's funny because I, there are many opinions on this. I mean, there are opinions as to the American Medical Association calls alcoholism a disease. There are people that say it doesn't fit the disease concept. You know, there, there's a lot of controversy about it. Yeah. Um, to me, and we touched on this earlier, when I take alcohol into my system, I can't consistently and accurately predict what's going to happen. You know, I might have five or six beers and call it a night, or I might end up somewhere else a couple of days later. I, I can't predict. And in the big book, it says, you know, uh, if when you honestly want to, uh, you can't quit. Or if when you start, you, you can't stop, you might be an alcoholic. Okay. And, um, so, and again, not that we need to like, we don't need a cat. I think it is, like you said, it's up to the individual to know whether they are powerless over alcohol. Yeah. And, um, but, but there's a lot of people that ask that, you know, they, they have asked that question when they come in, they go, well, my life's going kind of shitty. And I can't seem to hold a relationship or a job or anything. You know, does the alcohol have something to do with it? And it's a self-diagnosed disease. Mostly, sometimes judges will diagnose you. They'll say, okay, I sentence you to 30 days, you know, go to this many AA meetings or whatever, you know, for better or for worse. Um, so it, it's pretty much self-diagnosed. But um, there was a woman named Marty Mann who was one of the early women in AA that got sober, and she was friends with Bill Wilson. and um, she developed what I think is the acid test for people that really are un- unsure if they're alcoholic or not. Okay. Um, and it's funny because in the, in the, in the big book, it says, if you're not sure, go try some control drinking, start and stop, do all this. And you know, down there's a famous place called York street down in Denver, which has been there forever. It's an AA clubhouse. And those grizzled, oh, yeah. those grizzled old timers will go, I'll take you down to Colfax and buy you drinks. You know, if you're not sure, I mean, I, I don't feel comfortable telling people that, but it's in the, it's in the book, but Marty Mann developed this test, which I think is the absolute acid test. And she, her test is for 30 days, Drink two drinks, no more and no less. Wow. And if you can do that successfully, 
uh, you're you're probably not an alcoholic. Oh, then I guess my dad wasn't an alcoholic. Well, it depends. And the thing about that is because mostly if you're an alcoholic, if you you won't be able to stop at that second drink. Uh, and, okay. and anybody can white knuckle it for a month. You know, if you don't put any alcohol in your system, most people could just, you know, not drink for a month if they have no alcohol in their system. But put, to put two in your yeah. body uh, and to be able to stop, then, you know, most likely, you know, and there's always exceptions to the, to the Sure, rules, yeah. We talk in the, in the in the program, we talk about we have the fierce double whammy of uh, uh, a mental obsession that things are going to be different and the phenomenon of craving, which is what occurs after you take the first drink. What it does is once the alcohol's in your system, our, our brain chemistry seems to be somewhat different than normal drinkers. Yeah. And it creates essentially what's an opiate reaction, oh. which is then you start, you've got to have more, you know, and that's what people can never understand. I can remember hanging around with a friend years ago and uh, we'd worked on the road together and then he came here and we were hanging around at the cricket on the hill, you know, years ago. And I got out of control. And like the next day he goes, man, you were okay. So you, till you started doing the shots and then it was, you know, you know, it was crazy. And, <sighs> and your brain is just saying more, more, more. Yeah. Yeah. I don't relate to that. I hate nausea. Like I, I don't, if I have more than two drinks, I don't like that feeling and I don't want it. And I, I really don't. And, um, I had the same with cigarettes. I didn't understand people smoking cigarettes. I, I threw up after smoking my first cigarette yeah. when I was 12. And I was like, ah, I don't want that ever again. Yeah. So, I mean, I did smoke a lot in utero. Yeah. So I got that going for me. But I don't know. It's interesting. So there is like a chemical or a, or a brain or a neuronal that, or something. Th there is something that seems to be different in the, in the brain chemistry okay, of, of so, drunks than, than normal drinkers. So that, and, so, oh, I'm go Well, ahead. I was just going to go on to say, and, and denial is prevalent. Yeah. People can, they can convince themselves a lot of things. I mean, I got my, I got busted for pot the first year of my junior year in high school. I got my first DUI, uh, September, my senior year in high school. Wow. Uh, by the time I was 25 or 26, I'd had three or four DUIs. And at, at some point I, I had kind of a come to Jesus meeting with myself after the third DUI. And I was like, you know, George, you have got to get rid of this car. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this thing is really causing me some problems. So let's get rid of that. And I'm being a little bit glib, but I kind of did that. You know, I just didn't have a car for a while. And then I managed to still get thrown in jail a couple of times, even though I wasn't, even though I wasn't drinking, you know? Yeah. I got thrown in jail while on acid one time when I was oh, like really? 19 or 20. Yeah. Wow. And it was, it, that was not pleasant. <sighs> I can't imagine. I've never done acid. I've done, yeah. you know, psilocybin and MDMA, but just with a therapist. Although on, on psilocybin, I have done solo travels. But yeah, well, I haven't done crazy. acid. No, because was, acid, I heard, takes you on a long ride. Like was, you can't get off. You can't no. like psilocybin's like what two two hours at peaks and you're done it MDMA. It was a long ride and we've been drinking a, a lot too. I was I actually had a house with some friends. Uh, in Cherry Creek back before it was what it is now, you know, they were actually, it was just kind of back middle, when it was a Creek. It was like a middle class <laughs> neighborhood. Yeah. And, uh, we had a house back in the late seventies and we were drinking at the Cherry Cricket down there and, uh, and took acid and drank. And then I was stumbled home and I thought there was a shop down there 
and for some reason in my adult mind, I thought that's where I lived, you know? So <laughs> I was trying to get in, I was pounding on the door and I apparently, I like splintered the door and it set off the, the uh, burglar alarm. So the cops came oh, and now I'm tripping in the back of a cruiser. And I'll never forget this. There was a Latina policewoman who had dyed her hair red, but kind of neglected the maintenance of that, you know, okay. so she just <laughs> she had a like red stripe down the back of her head, which when that was, I mean, now that would be commonplace, but that was, yeah, before it was cool. That, she started the trend. I'd never seen that before. And I was just tripping, looking at her head. And I, <laughs> I said, why in the world did you dye your hair red? <laughs> did you think we wouldn't know? And the, <laughs> the guy driving the car pulled over. He goes, you say one more, we're going to beat the shit out of you. I said, gotcha. <laughs> you know, so I went down there, but the point of the story is my first amends happened around that because this, and this is just totally white privilege today. They put me in the felons bin. I'd been in the drunk tank before, which is just kind of, that's just a bunch of goofballs, you know, but they put me in the felons bin because they thought I was trying to break into this place. And uh, that's a little ooh, scarier clientele. clientele. Yeah. Yes. So the next morning, the cop, the detective goes, what's the deal here? I mean, you don't have any, I mean, you've got some, yeah, you don't have any serious crimes. You don't have any property crimes, you know, what's going on. And I, I didn't tell him I'd been tripping, but I said, I was just really drunk and I don't really know what happened to tell you the truth. He goes, well, I'm going to call the owner of this place. And if you give, if you agree to make restitution, we'll see if they'll drop the charges. And I said, okay. And so it turned out to be this woman, Carolyn Finneran. I still remember her name. And this, cause this shop was like a woman's clothing shop that you were, that I was pounding on. Yeah. And, um, and so he talked to her and she said, he, I will agree to drop charges, but he has to come and talk to me himself. There you go. And I was like, okay. And so I went to her and I can't, how old was I then? I was 20 years old. And I went to her and I said, I'm the guy that, you know, pounded your door. And she goes, well, I just wanted to meet you. And I said, and uh, I, I will make restitution and I'm very sorry I put you through this. And, you know, is there anything else? I, I was, I didn't realize that years later I'd be doing more amends like that. But yeah. I, that was the first time. Foreshadowing. It, it was foreshadowing. And then we became friends and I used to buy my mom's Christmas present there every Aww. year for like 15 years. Aww. And then um, maybe longer than that, because I got sober. I, I was in and out of the program for a number of years. And then I got sober this time when I was 35. And I remember going in there maybe when I was 36 and I bought a present for my mom and I said, she said, how are you doing? I said, I've been sober for a while, you know? So, oh, beautiful. Yeah. It was kind of a wild, uh, wild story there. Yeah. I love the redemption or I don't know if that's the word, but just that resilience. Cause I have a good friend whose son just got out of rehab and then relapsed and it's heartbreaking. Well, she said to me, I have a son and I would like to think if he made a mistake, somebody would yeah. cut him some slack. Oh, again, it was grace. Yeah. You know, it was yeah. like, and to me, one of the biggest spiritual principles is the ability to cut ourselves and other people some slack. Yeah. You know, to not expect perfection from everybody, you know, that's to just, something, man, to just go, Oh yeah, you made a mistake, you know, and you know that as a parent, when we get to practice that a lot, I know and I make and, amends to my son a lot. Cause I have a pattern of, well, I was taught with shame. And then I, when I hear my mom's voice oh, and yeah. it's like, it's not, it's not a nice correction. It's not like, oh, hey, by the way, once again, you know, I'm asking you to honor your word here. But it, there's this shame energy that I throw at him sometimes that luckily he has a lot of Teflon to that. It, he, yes, it doesn't seem to like crumple him, but I just feel terrible and I have to own it. 
and well, I love all the Brene Brown stuff. Are you familiar with Brene yeah, Brown? Yeah, in does fact, a lot of groundbreaking yeah. work on guilt and shame, and um, yeah, you know, she talks about guilt is the idea that you did a shitty thing, and shame is the idea that you are shitty. You know, and yeah, and the and the huge difference between those things. And I had a therapist years ago. I could remember feeling guilty about stuff, and he said to me. Guilt is a bullshit emotion. He goes, either, he goes, own what you do, man. He goes, do it or don't do it, but don't feel guilty about it. <laughs> and yeah. I thought that was an interesting concept. It's like, you know, if you're going to do it, and I will tell you, I'm sorry, I'm going to launch on something here. Okay, for go ahead. Okay. In doing the work of the program, you know, we do a fear inventory. In, in addition to doing that, uh, you know, uh, resentmentless and then, you know, people we've harmed and all that stuff, we do a fear inventory. And so at the beginning, that was fairly uh, superficial stuff. Like I'm not going to have enough money for rent. You know, I'm not having enough gigs. It was that kind of thing. Over the years, you get down to the existential fears, which for me are I'm incompetent and worthy and unlovable. You know, yeah. that's the existential stuff for me. Yeah. And I mask that pretty well. The way I mask it is with ego and arrogance and false bravado. Yeah, you know, right. not, it doesn't manifest that way for everybody, but for me, that's, you know, that's how I do it. I don't even know I'm doing it, but that's, that's what happens because I've got this, your false self, this tower of jello on the inside. That's, that's just this wounded five-year-old child. And then I make up for it by, you know, putting on the big front, you know, I find that that's interesting when we go through the work of, of figuring that out, you know? Yeah. That. Now, I, I always picture scaffolding, like the my recovery work is like scaffolding holding me up while I deconstruct my foundation. Yes. That tower of jello. What a great analogy. And I remember you saying this to me once. You're like, comedians are the most arrogant, insecure people on earth. And I do think there's something to that. I mean, I do feel, but also there's something in us that because we chose comedy over other things, that there is a part of us. For me, it feels like a healing energy Yes, that it transmutes. That's the whole point of this, this traumedy podcast, taking the dark and then bringing it up into the light yes. and, and kind of transmuting it into something manageable, but also actually something fun. And I was thinking about, well, I wanted, I know I wanted to go back just to a, when you <laughs> used to do that bit about driving while you're stoned. Uh -huh. Do you remember yeah, that one? Yes. <laughs> You got pulled over. I got pulled over on I-25. Uh, a friend of mine was driving. We were in high school, and we got pulled over on I-25 for going four miles an hour. And, and he thought he was getting popped for speeding. You know, he's like, all right, everybody maintain, man. You know, and the cop comes up. He's just laughing. And he's like, you, you have any idea how fast you were going? And the guy goes, no. And he holds up like four fingers. How about this many? He goes, let's put it this way, son. I'm a mounted patrol. <laughs> And I had to slow down to pull you over. So, uh, but you know, comedy. What was the I, one about, what was the one about, I know I wasn't swerving? That, oh yeah, I got a DUI. Yeah. And I, I know I wasn't swerving because I was using the curb as a guide. <laughs> which unfortunately is a true story. Yeah, you have there, yeah. so many, you had, you have a lot of traumedy around your DUIs. Well, yeah. And you know, the thing, and I love the, the your concept for the whole podcast here of healing some of this trauma with comedy, but also I can, uh, as I demonstrated in, you know, being put on joke restriction, I can even, you know, do that in a way that doesn't totally serve me. And also I have to realize, you know, the, the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said, a joke is an epitaph of an emotion. Mm. 
Meaning yeah. epitaph being what they put on your tombstone, uh, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So the idea that sometimes, you know, there's a joke, but there's also, there's always, there's a, there's big. an emotion in there somewhere, you know? That's right. And, uh, it's and, funny because it's, it's true. And it's funny in AA because we, it's, AA is like hanging around with comedians, you know, because we have pretty dark sense of humor, you yep. know? And yeah. it, it actually, sometimes it's funny because sometimes someone will bring a, a loved one to a, to an open meeting, yeah. you know? And I, and it'll be somebody, some guy sharing like, you know, and then I, uh, you know, and then I tried to hang myself, but the rope broke and uh, my fall was broken by a pile of conference approved literature, you know, and, <laughs> so everybody is laughing their asses off and this guy's relative, you know, somebody's relatives just looking at, you know, their eyes are real big. Yeah, oh you God. can't joke about stuff like crazy. that. Yeah. You know, but, that dark you know, sense of humor. Well, with, yeah. nur- with nurses and uh, police officers, firefighters, that's, I, I often do my power of humor talk with them because gallows humor, especially with nurses, they feel ashamed of the dark humor and the gallows humor because there's just something, you know, we're supposed to be the healers yes. and always taking care of everybody. But then you go in the back room and laugh about something that some patient maybe oh, yeah. did or went through. But that is absolutely necessary. And what I want to say, though, I am not sure I'm up. For, I get the joke restriction thing. However, like my therapist said, there's a way that it allows you, it drops your defenses. It actually uh, empowers you because you know you have this buoyancy of the humor that you can dive a little deeper because mm. of it, because you know you've got a resource. I mean, obviously higher power is the best resource yes. for this kind of thing, but I think humor is a language of higher power too. No, I hear you, and it may not have been. I, it's you know, a t- I it's know. a balance, I mean, right? It's not like they could have said two weeks or something, and I said, "Then I get to be fun." You know? Yeah, but well, no, I understand though. If you're doing it constantly, where you're not letting yourself go deeper, and yes. you're you're using it as a static. Uh, well, I want to tell you one of my favorite stories, and this is we're going to get a little heavy here, and then, okay, uh, you know, I suffer suffer from clinical depression for many years, you know, which manifested in some some pretty hard times, you know. Uh, several suicide attempts and the most recent one being that's when I got sober. I mean, this was uh, 30 years ago and uh, I had, I had had about a year and a half of sobriety and then um, I had a bad breakup and I just kind of went to pieces and started drinking again. And I went on like a 10 week bender did not draw a sober breath. And at the end of that 10 weeks, um, I got tired of taking the slow train to oblivion and I wanted to take the fast train and I drove my car to a garage of a house that my mom owned in Denver. And I had come to, this was on a Thursday morning and I'd come to still drunk from the night before. And so it's about eight 30 in the morning and I parked my car and closed the door of the garage and sat there with the motor running for about 15 or 20 minutes. And just as I was about to lose consciousness, a voice came in my head and said, don't check out this way. Wow. And I got out of the car and kind of rolled around in the dirt. And then to be honest, I can't remember if it was that day or the next day, but I went back to a, a meeting I'd been going to uh, in downtown Denver and told them what I'd been doing on my summer vacation. <laughs> yeah. So my favorite part of the story is this meeting I went to was on 18th and Broadway at the Trinity Methodist church. And it was a real, cross section of people because you get all these, it was a nooner and we get all these white collar people. And then there's like four halfway houses near there. So you get street people. I mean, you get everybody. And there was a street guy named who I loved. He was really weird. Uh, but he would say this like weird, weirdly transcendent stuff. Sometimes if you could listen to it, you know, I came back that day and told him, you know, what, what I'd been doing. And after the meeting, he comes up to me and he goes, 
So uh, I guess that suicide thing didn't work out for you, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and I swear to God, I, la- I just laughed. And I was, that was the first time I had laughed in like 10 weeks. And I was like, no, guess it didn't. But, you know, thank you for thank you for listening to my story. And thanks for the pep talk. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but I just. But that, like you said, transcendent in a way, too. Yes. Almost like God's voice. You know, because I do feel that sense of humor from God. That yes. sounds like a God sense of humor. Yes. Guess that suicide thing didn't work out for yes. you. Huh? Speaking of God. So, like I said, I came to this program that talks about having a, you know, living by spiritual principles and. Uh, there's a lot of God stuff in there that I didn't want any part of. And I, I still don't understand how it works. So I have kind of my sense of God. I just think of God as love and there's a power of love in the universe. But um, uh, in the, in the program, in the, in the big book, there's a couple of stories about guys that have these like white light experiences, you know, like mm-hmm. Bill Wilson, he's in the hospital and then he feels the presence of God. He feels like he's on a mountaintop and feels the presence of God. You know, and the doctor comes in, and he goes, doctor, you're not going to believe this, but God was in this room, you know, and the doctor, nicely enough, says, you know, if I were you, I'd go with it. This is the fourth time you've been in the hospital here, you know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. and which was cool because you can imagine a lot of, this is a psychiatrist, a lot of people go, oh, that's really nice, Bill. Why don't you take a couple of these pills, <laughs> calm down, and we'll talk tomorrow, you know. Uh, so there's a couple of stories like that. And so they wrote in the back uh in the back of the big book, they have this thing called it's the appendix on spiritual experience, uh, which occurs uh, after the first printing of the big book. And they write this and they say, we wrote this because we want you to know that not everybody has white light experience like that. You know, we may, we don't want to give the idea that um, that has to be like that. It's like many people have uh, what they call a spiritual experience of the educational variety which occurs, you know, over time, and you may not have this big epiphany like that. So in my case, for many years, I thought, okay, well, that's what I've had over the years. I've had a, an, a spiritual experience of the educational variety. You know, I've never had a white light experience or anything like that. And then just about five or six years ago, I was thinking, I, I was like, well, what, what was it when you were in that car with the motor running, yeah. determined to kill yourself, and that voice said, don't check out this way. I have goosebumps. See, you know? I get spiritual signs. Well, and I know, you know, uh, cynical scientists among you might say that was just a collection of uh, biochemical tissues and electromagnetic impulses trying not to lose their host. <laughs> you know, so there's that. that that's one example. That's one possibility. But I choose to see some divinity in it, you know, that that my time wasn't done. And um and I received that gift, you know, and they're yeah. both equally plausible, but yeah. I, I feel that, you know, that, that, and it's funny how your, your idea changes after, I mean, I was sober over 20 years before I even was willing to look at that event differently. And also just love when things come through with a kind of a, you know, the feeling of the aha moment yeah. of that. So, uh, I, I mean, and I, of course, man, I just, and I got, I just want, you to know, I do get these confirmations from spirit that come to me as goosebumps. And I just got goosebumps when you said that. And I, I have a neighbor that lives across the street. who's total scientist. And it actually agitates him when I talk about my <laughs> spiritual experiences. Yeah. He's like, ah, you know, like you said, the, the way you described a scientist yes. describing something and that's okay. Like yes. he can have his reality. I can have mine. We can coexist. I happen to get a lot of signs from spirit. And I am not exaggerating, on my 12th step, when I was reading the paragraph that said, as a result of working these steps, you may have a spiritual awakening. And I was laying in the hammock in my backyard, 
and a hawk just came swooping right over me. Like, and I got goosebumps all over and I knew. And from then on, I still get these signs from hawks that tell me when I'm having a certain, they, I can't explain it, George. We can interpret things how we want. I choose to see the divinity in things. Uh, I was walking uh, on my walk a, a year or two ago and there was this dragonfly that was just flying in front of me for what seemed like a mile, but it probably wasn't that long, but I was just like, Oh, that I feel like not alone in the universe, <laughs> you know, yeah. just cause there's this little dragonfly, you know, stuff like that. And yep. I wanted to, I don't know how much time we got left, but I want to, um, as much as we want. Well, cause I have two epiphany stories that okay, I, I would to, love, I like I those love, aha moments. And let, let me tell you, I love it. So, this, so the first one, I was about seven years sober and I had had the unbridled joy of uh, being married and divorced in the program at that point. And so I had this little one bedroom condo and I love this place. I mean, it was, it had this nice big balcony and an indoor pool and underground parking. And it was, it was very modest, but I loved it, you know, and I was seven years sober and I was sponsoring several guys and I went to like nine meetings a week and I felt really, you know, in the flow of life and everything. So I come down one day to, to take a walk. There's all these mansions. So I, I come down to take a walk around the neighborhood and I'm walking down the street and I'm, I'm feeling bathed in God's love. You know, mm. I'm so wonderful. And I walk down the street and I go, oh, there's that. I go, oh, there's, uh, there's Teddy White's house. There's a guy I went to grade school and high school. Oh. I keep looking at it, you know, and I keep walking. I go, that's a big fucking house. <laughs> like, I don't have a big house. I have a one bedroom condo. You know, I just start chewing on it. Yeah. You know, start comparing. How come he's got that big house? You know, and then, um, and I'm like, God damn it, I'm smarter than Teddy White. You know, and and it's not even true. Like he went to Yale and NYU Law School. It's not even true. But that's the story I tell myself that to draw myself up. You know, not even true. And so I'm walking around Cheeseman Park there, and I'm just chewing. How come he's got that goddamn house? You know, it's just a comparison game. And then I had one of the biggest epiphanies ever in my life, like a lightning bolt. This voice said to me, the universe has not fucked you over. <laughs> and it was, and it was like, by any stretch of the imagination, you've been given more gifts than 99% of people on the planet. You have your health, you're sober now, you live in this beautiful city, in this beautiful state. And then we talk about doing gratitude lists in AA sometimes. I don't think I'd ever done one. And just in my head, this gratitude list came through of like all the people I'd known, the people I loved, the books I'd read, the music I'd heard, the movies I'd seen, the interact. I mean, it just came flooding into my consciousness Yeah. of like, you know, the universe has not fucked you over. But sometimes we have that thought. I feel like that's your book. Yeah. The universe has well, not fucked you over. And then the other thing was, so, and I keep walking and I go, and, and furthermore, you like Teddy White. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, you, you've been friends since you were kindergarten. He's never said an unkind word to you in his entire life. Why is his success somehow detrimental to your happiness? Yeah. You know, and there's that old, uh, that old saying, uh, comparison is the thief of joy. You yes, know, it it's is. like, it's like, why do you, why does it even matter? And, and that was a, that was a huge epiphany in my outlook on, on life and, and how we relate to other people. And I don't have to get in. And I, still do it sometimes, you I know, know. I mean, and that's, I think, and that's the curse and blessing of the reach of Facebook and Instagram yeah. and how, why are they getting 5,000 likes? And I have 15 oh, well. and it is that I call it compare itis. One more epiphany. Yeah. This actually happened when I was, uh, I was just like six months sober and I was headlining the comedy works in Tampa. Oh, I remember. Yes. And it wasn't going great. 
<laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I was six months sober and I'd hit a pretty hard bottom as I talked about before, but so I was trying to do the work, but it kind of, that spiritual thing hadn't, hadn't kicked in yet. And I didn't have my anesthesia anymore, you know, and I'm on the road and all this stuff and I'm not having great shows. I mean, it was just, it was hard. And so I went to the a meeting at noon and on the way to the meeting, I was playing uh, this game that a lot of alcoholics in early sobriety play, which is uh, what would I allow myself to drink over? Oh, you know, like yeah. what if my, uh, what if my dad was terminally ill or what if I was sick or what if, the, you know, what, what if this happened or that happened? Would I let myself drink and uh, just playing that silly game in my head? So I go to this meeting and there's this young man there who's like mid twenties and he shares in the meeting and he says, you know, I'm, uh, I'm terminally ill with AIDS. And a lot of my friends say, why do you keep going to those meetings, man? You know, why don't you just drink as much as you can and, and, take as many drugs as you can and have sex with as many people as you can and just be like a, a Viking funeral, just light that boat on fire and float it out into the harbor, you know? And he said, I don't do that because I am going to die soon. And I want to be emotionally present for every moment I have left on this planet. Mm. And that was such a profound effect on me because that's when I began to understand that sobriety is the gift Always before I had looked at it as some sort of deprivation. You know, what am I? I was yes. like, what am I? How come I can't drink mimosas? You know, I never did, but you know, how come Imagine. I can't, how come I can't, can't take acid on Wednesdays? You know, <laughs> how come I can't do all this stuff? And yeah. what I came to understand is sobriety was the gift. And the only thing I was being deprived of was killing myself slowly. Yeah. You know, so that was a, uh, that, that affected my, my recovery to this day. And you know what else? You are the, one of the people who recommended The Power of Now to me, the book by Eckhart Tolle. I wanted to talk about what you just said, which was, I'm only depriving myself of killing myself slowly, but I would say I'm only depriving myself of my life because the joy is being present. Yeah. And in this moment, not in the future, not in the past, and certainly not dissociated with alcohol where we're distanced and way buried inside. No, absolutely. So we're the gift of being in the present and people who value this present moment and this connection that is real. Yes. This is the well, joy in life. And I would like to expand on that, that a lot of the stuff, and I listen to a lot of Eckhart Tolle talks and everything, and I know he's kind of pop psychology these days, but I love him. And he teaches a lot of stuff, uh, and a lot of it's from the Buddhist tradition. A lot of it's from various. Places, he draws from Christianity. He draws as well. from everything. You yeah, know? he's but, eclectic. But he talks about the ego, and he says the ego's main job is to perpetuate itself, and the way it does that is by separating you out from everybody else, and the way it does that is by trying to make you feel greater than or less than, yeah, rather than you know approximately equal to that. The ego does all its work in the past and the future. Yeah. It's either ruminating uh, about some slight in the past or projecting about some, you know, an event that hasn't even happened yet. Yeah. That's the way. And it produces fear. Fear is the primary tool of the ego. So those things produce fear in the present moment. The ego can gain no traction. Yeah. You know, when you're in the present moment, it can't, it's, it can't run those numbers on you. Yeah. I always think of it like a binary code, like zero, one, like it's threat, no threat, threat, no threat for me. Yeah. Like I just, you know, and then 
ruminating in the past for me is like preparing for the threat in the future. Yep. So I gotta be, I gotta be ready. Like I'm going to this HOA meeting and I'm already like othering uh, them, you know, like instead yeah. of, like you said, the oneness and. Well, one of my favorite things that Eckhart says is uh, anything we accept fully can lead us to peace. Mm-hmm. That idea of getting out of denial and getting into let's, let's just accept what really is at this moment. Now, we can change it. We can, we, we, what we can change is primarily our attitude about yeah. things, but we can influence yeah. things and we can try to change it. But yeah. And a lot of that helps when we've talked about this too, is uh, prayer and meditation, you know, helps with some of this stuff for me. And I'm not very disciplined at it and yeah. all to be honest, but I saw this wonderful animated video on meditation by this guy named Dan Harris. It used to be, he was a, an anchor for ABC news and he's written, he wrote a wonderful book called uh, uh, meditation for fidgety skeptics, <laughs> which is a wonderful title. Yeah. But in this, uh, in this little animated video, he says meditation is a radical act that can free you from a lifetime of wandering around in a fog of rumination and projection. Say it one more time. Meditation is a radical act that can free you from a lifetime of wandering around in a fog of rumination and projection. Mm. And what I love about that is too, so again, for me, the rumination, you know, they didn't sufficiently recognize my genius at some point in the past. So I'm going to chew on that. Um, or the projection of some, I'm not going to get what I want, or this isn't going to happen out in the future. And I love the word projection because there's a couple different meanings, you know, there's the, the clinical definition of projection in psychology of, you know, accusing other people of having the stuff that you yourself suffer from, you know, but there's also coming from the audio video world, there's projection screen. And so when I think about that uh, projection, it's like we, we throw all our experience and our preconceived notions and everything kind of onto this screen out there as we try to negotiate the world, uh, which actually makes it difficult to witness the true reality, which lies on the under, other side of the screen. Yeah. So when we can kind of clean that off yeah, a little bit and let go of some of those, those projections and ruminations, then we might have a better idea of seeing the ultimate truth. Yes. Thank you. And being curious like that, I'm just going to project onto you. And that way it's almost like visually, psychologically, jamming the signals where there is no room for you to come through. Yeah. So how do I like really be present in this, like being present in this conversation, yeah. hearing each other. And you know, that happens in so many interactions with people and you can feel it sometimes you just go, Oh yeah, you're putting all that stuff on, you know, yeah. it's like, I'm sorry, you know? Uh, and again, to, to come back to compassion, you know, and just to be compassionate for everybody is always my, my job, you know, is to summon up some love in my heart to meet any situation. That's, that's the goal, uh, to, you know, to try to do that. And it's, it's difficult sometimes because we have our own stuff that we carry around and, you know, and, and I always say, you know, in, in AA, it says we're not cured of alcoholism. What we have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. Yeah. And I always say, the thing is, I'm one fear away from being an unfit spiritual condition, you know, and I don't know which one it's going to be. I might be able to handle four and then the universe sends me seven and yeah. then I might act out in weird 
ways that don't serve me or anybody else very well. And that, that can still happen today. Yeah. And it's good when we can recognize those variables. Yeah. You know, the, for me, the really core, simple, enough sleep, eat well. Yeah. exercise, meditate. If I do those four things, everything else seems to take care of itself. Well, that's an old recovery thing. They talk about halt, which is, you know, don't get too hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Yeah. And then I have one called splat, which is uh, don't get too self-centered, paranoid, lonely, angry, or tired. Or you might go splat. Yes. So, <laughs> and then we always have all these acronyms for fear. And my favorite acronym for fear is forget every acronym, right? <laughs> <laughs> There it is. The book ends on tromedy. I love that. The satire within the wisdom. You know, and it is. I, I, this is the thing. You know, the wisdom to know the difference. I, this hit me just recently that the same behavior might be wise in the past or at a different time. It's situational. Mm, and yeah. it is. It is a daily, like, is it wise today? You know, those survival traits that we learn about that were, were served us at some point yeah. that we, that were wise then now they're not. And well, we, I hear that people talk about that meaning sometimes like, you know, alcohol got me through hard shit that, at various times, that's right. you know, yep. that, that actually helped me to not kill myself. At that's various right. Times, that's you know? right. So that's, it's like, uh, that was different then. And then it didn't serve me. You that's, know? that's it. Because I was overserved. <laughs> Well, I think that we have served an adequate amount of trauma with traumedy. Have I, we protected though? Did we serve and protect, or we just—that's <laughs> not our job, I guess. That isn't. No, I We're don't. We're just have, serving. I don't okay. have the badge, but do you have? Right. You do have the right to remain silent. Thank but I don't. I don't have the ability to remain. Silent. That's the Ron White joke. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, and I. Oh, anyway, we could. Gosh, we could do this all day. I hope. Let's do a regular. Want to be? Right. A, will you be, be a regular? I'd love to be a regular. Oh, that'd be fun. So I'll have you back to do help me traumatize. Traumatized, not traumatized, traumatized, traumatized. I've been traumatized. <laughs> Thank you, George X, Thank for you. sharing your experience, strength, and hope. Thank you, Nancy. This was fun. I appreciate it. Peace, peace, ouch. Peace, ouch. <laughs> That's my safe word, by the way. <laughs> ouch. Yes. That is a great joke. <laughs> I'd like to thank my guest, George X, and thank you for tuning in to Traumedy. Thank you, Nathaniel Norton, for putting together the music for Traumedy. And again, let me know if you have any questions or any topics you'd like to have covered or clarifications or corrections. I'm open to all that kind of feedback. I'm Nancy Norton. You can reach out to me at my website, www.nancynorton.tv. Okay, thanks for listening. Have a great week. And remember, take your trauma, take your pain, and play with it.